A reading from Genesis 32. The same night he rose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok, and he took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left all alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, and when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Which is a real shame, because I hear sinew soup's pretty good. I don't know. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, good evening to Red Mountain Church. Uh, blessings to you all. I, I had the privilege recently of having a, a, an adult beverage with your new pastor, and I was thrilled with just getting to meet him and what's going on here. So I, I, I'm praying for you all and believe that your future is bright. I'm very, very happy for you, and I'm always glad to be with you. It's a special place for us. Uh, we're going to wrestle with this Genesis text tonight, so you can keep it before you out from your bulletin. Um, some of you are familiar, I imagine most of you are familiar with gospel tracts, or perhaps you grew up in a world of gospel tracts, where you pass these out to help people get saved. Um, I grew up in this world. I kid you not, I was with my children at the movie theater up at the summit, I don't know, some few months ago, and uh, went to the men's restroom, and in a very strategic place in the men's restroom at the movie theater, there was a gospel tract. There's a particular gospel tract that's had a long shelf life. Some of you may know it. It's uh, from the Four Spiritual Laws produced by Campus Crusade. Do you know that tract? Um, I, I, uh, the, the tract kind of begins by asking the question, how can I have a personal relationship with God? It's principle one or spiritual law number one. Are you Christians? Are you going to know this tract? Nobody knows it? No, okay. Um, well, the, the tract uh, goes something like this. God loves you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you heard that before? Uh, it's a statement that's filled with truth. Um, though I think we have to take into account sometimes that God's wonderful plan doesn't really match up with what we think wonderful is all about. But there's a lot of truth to that. I was on the internet some time ago and I saw a spoof on this spiritual law. Um, there's a famous painting. Some of you may know this painting. It's by a French artist that's depicting second century martyrs in Rome. And the paintings are rather provocative and evocative. It's the scene in the Colosseum, and you have a group of Christians that are huddled around praying around a senior figure who's standing with his hands raised, 
And there are torches in the Colosseum that if you begin to look closely at the torches, you, you see that it's actually people that have been on a torch and pitched and set a fire, which, by the way, is the tradition of how uh, one of the early church fathers named Polycarp was martyred in the faith. He was pitched and tarred and then set ablaze. It's horrific. But you see this scene. It's very, very profound. And, and the view that you have onto this scene of these potential or these upcoming martyrs who are about to be martyred for their faith is you're looking through the side entry, the side galley of the Colosseum over the back of a lion that's about to be released into the Colosseum. I've known this painting for a very long time. Some of you can probably picture it right now. Very moving. Well, I saw a spoof on this, where you had that painting there, and underneath it was the caption that said, um, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Right. The narrative that we read tonight in Jacob, um, in Je- about Jacob in Genesis is similar to the spoof on that painting. Jacob, you're the son of promise. Jacob, your older brother's going to serve you. Jacob, you're the means by which God is going to make good on his covenant with Abraham to the whole world. But the problem, of course, for Jacob, even though God does have a wonderful plan for his life, the problem for Jacob is Jacob can't escape himself. The narrative of Jacob's life is a narrative of the outworking of the meaning of his name, Jacob. Jacob means heel catcher, heel grabber, manipulator, Mr. Wiley, we might call him. Let me have some soup, Jacob asked his brother. Okay, but give me my birth, the birthright. What's a birthright to me if I'm dead? Okay, well, here's your soup. Jacob's working his plan. He's deceptive. He's insidious, he's wily, but God has a wonderful plan for your life, Jacob. All of these Jacob stories that you read in the Genesis, and I actually find the whole Jacob cycle fascinating, but all of these Jacob stories are moving tyrannically toward one narratival moment. In fact, as readers of Genesis, I think we sense a tension that begins to build as the narrative drives you to a particular moment in time. Jacob and Esau are going to have to meet. And this is going to be a meeting of all meetings. The last time these brothers parted, they they parted in anger, Esau promising to take Jacob's life. And now Jacob, in Genesis 32, is on the eve of that encounter with Esau, and all of his energies, all of his psychological concern, all of his emotional frame of reasoning, all of it's moving toward one particular moment. And that moment that it's moving to is this encounter with Esau. And this is the irony, I think, of our text tonight. The irony is that Even though all of Jacob's emotional energy, all of his scheming, all of his wiliness is moving toward this meeting with Esau, there's an encounter that he's about to have on the banks of a river in the middle of the night that's more dangerous, that's more difficult, that's more threatening than any encounter that Esau could ever bring. Tonight... Jacob's going to wrestle with God. I think texts like Genesis 32 remind us of the way overquoted statement from C.S. Lewis where he says that God is good, but God's not necessarily safe. 
God can't be domesticated. Um, I, I believe there are texts like that in the Bible that are there just to remind us that you might think you've got God in your back pocket, but you don't. I don't know if you know this weird text in Exodus chapter 4. God's just called Moses. He says, go to Pharaoh. I'm going to be with you. Aaron's going to meet you in the wilderness. And then the next verse says, and on the way, Yahweh, God, tried to kill Moses. Like, what? But Zipporah, his wife, she circumcised circumcised her son real fast, rubbed some blood on him, and uh, and God's anger was thwarted. Next verse. And then they met Aaron on the way, and they said, well, three, God tried to kill Moses. Why? Don't know. I love texts like these. It's captured my imagination for a long time, especially this Genesis 32 text. Jacob has sent his family to the northern side of the Jabbok River. And in the haunting words of the text... Jacob is left in the middle of the night all alone. Now, we're not completely sure why Jacob's left all alone, but he remains by himself. It's enigmatic. It's, I don't know, it's it's spooky. And here he is. Martin Luther says that Jacob stays all by himself because he needs to pray, and it's the kind of prayers that he doesn't want his family to overhear, maybe. And then out of nowhere, a man appears. And Jacob begins to wrestle with this man until the breaking of the dawn. I think we're so familiar with the story that we don't really, sometimes I think we lose its punch. This may be one of the strangest stories in all of the Bible. Out of nowhere, a man appears, and they're in a wrestling match that they're engaged with till the breaking of the dawn. Can we ask some questions about this text? I have four questions I'd like to ask with you tonight. Number one, why did these two men begin to fight? You know, we see this stuff on TV all the time, don't we? Punching, and even my kids watching, you know, punching in in the face, and we laugh, ha-ha. But when you're around in a real-life situation, and you see another human being strike another human being, and you're near it, it's a profound big deal. I've I've been in one fist fight in my life, one. And uh, it it was seventh grade, protecting my mother's honor. It, It didn't go real well for me, to be honest with you. Beginning in a fight is a big deal. What precipitated this encounter? Why did they start to wrestle? We don't know. The narrative doesn't tell us. We just see them going at it, dust flying, men grunting. Number two. We also have the benefit, I think, of the story in its entirety. But Jacob doesn't know who this man is. He has no idea who he is. We know that the figure is God in human form. Or as Hosea 12 tells us, this figure is is the angel of the Lord and God at the same time, a man and God. We won't chase that sort of uh, Christological reading, but it's going on here, I think. But we know that this man is God in human form. And here's the wonder of wonders in the text. Jacob is holding his own. Now, this is interesting because I think I tend to think of Jacob as a little bit of a, uh, I can say this self-deprecatory, a little bit of an academic, kind of soft, likes to read read books and hang out in an office. Now, Esau, we can see Esau kind of wrestling around, but here's Jacob, mama boy Jacob, and he's holding his own. He can't prevail. Number three. 
We also see, though, that this wrestling match is staged in a way. Because when Jacob prevails, the man then touches Jacob's hip and he puts it out of socket. Now the word here for touch is a kind of hard, it's too soft to translate it touch. It's really more like strike. He strikes Jacob's hip and when he strikes Jacob's hip, he puts it out of socket. And the, if the narrative itself t- seems to intimate that when this happens, Jacob knows that he's dealing with a supernatural person. This is not a normal wrestling match. He just touched my hip and I can't walk right anymore. So now when Jacob perceives that this is no ordinary man, here's the heel catcher, here's Mr. Wiley at it again. No, I won't let you go until you bless me. And now the heart of the story is before us. The great exchange of the name now occurs. What is your name, the figure asked. What is your name? Doesn't the question that emanates from God here at this particular moment remind you of God's question in the garden? Adam, where are you? God asks these questions to stir the conscience. I learned that piece of pastoral advice a long time ago from somebody. Accusations tend to harden the will, but a question will, a question will stir the conscience. So here God asks a question to Jacob. What is your name? And now his conscience begins to get stirred. Jacob, who are you? Now, of course, God knows his name, but Jacob has to own it. Jacob has to announce who he is. I'm Jacob. I'm the heel catcher. I'm the grabber. I'm the wily one who manipulates and coerces. And here the wonderful exchange occurs. You're no longer heel catcher. You're no longer heel grabber. You're no longer Jacob. But you are now Yisrael. Which means you have striven with God. God striver. Right. This is your name now. Jacob is the one who recognizes that more than anything else, he needs to be blessed by God. No, I won't let you go until you bless me. And God does it by exchanging his name from one who is a wily one, a manipulator, to one who has striven with God and prevailed. Martin Luther, John Calvin, more importantly, the prophet Hosea, All of them together understand that Jacob's wrestling match in Genesis 32 is symbolic of the identity of God's people. We wrestle with God. We struggle with God. We struggle to believe in the saving promises of God through all the various movements and turns and twists of life. Hosea says it this way, Jacob strove with the angel and he prevailed. He wept and he sought his favor. So you too, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Do you know what Hosea the prophet is saying as he's interpreting Genesis 32? Hosea the prophet is telling us, Jacob's story, that's your story. When you go to the river Jabbok in the middle of the night and you see the dust flying between Jacob and this unnamed man who shows up and they begin to wrestle man and God going at it at the riverbanks, when you look at that story, you're looking at your own narrative at play. Who are you? 
What's our name? What's your name? I'm the one who refuses, by God's grace, to let go of his saving promises. I'm the one who's foul. I'm the one who flies to the fountain, who flies to the Savior and asks him to wash me lest I die. Don't you think the life of faith is a dynamic and ongoing encounter with the living God? Or in Martin Luther's phraseology, and I'm more and more convinced of this, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not a one-moment repentance, but it's a life that's marked by repentance. Now, now, admittedly, not every day for you or for me is a Jabok or a Penuel day. But the Penuel moment that you might be in now, whether by temptation or trial or failure, I don't think it's going to be your last. And unfortunately, mine either. I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, sang all the ditties. You know these ditties. Here's one I used to sing all the time growing up. You know this one? Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. A little boobop tune with it. I don't like that song. I don't think you do either. It's certainly not a Red Mountain kind of song. Why? Because every day isn't sweeter. Because some days we're down by the river and we're wrestling with God. You know, I think somewhere in the recesses of my own upbringing and church life, I hope that a certain level of spirituality could be attained where every day did get better and better, releasing me from the woes and the cares of this life, a kind of ethereal hope that was dislodged from the realities of life and the world. You know, that's, that's Buddhism or Stoicism, something like that, but it's not Christianity It's certainly not a life of repentance. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes. And his plan, more often than not, entails a few moments at night by the river wrestling with God. What makes a theologian Martin Luther, if we were to ask him, he had an answer to that question. What makes a theologian? Trial. Struggle. Jabok, Penuel, that's what makes a theologian. And I think, unfortunately, it's what makes a Christian too. I believe your gospel promises are true, but I'm finding it very hard to believe them right now. I'm at Jabok. So what does one say about a life in the gospel, your life in the gospel? Now, we all inhabit our own stories Narratives that can't easy, easily be applied to the stories of others. I mean, I feel that way in this framework of my own family. You know, I deal with students at Beeson and where I teach, and you know, they want to talk about marriage, and I'm just like, I, you know, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, you know, I've got my own marriage, got its own problems, working on it. You know, God bless you. I don't know how to transfer all that, but you know, I'll pray for you. You know, we inhabit our. That's why I'm not a pastor, by the way. So you can tell that. We all inhabit our own stories. You know, narratives that can't easily be applied to the stories of others. But one thing that you and I and the whole broad stream of the Christian church back to its inception 
What we have in common is a story that's driven by a life lived together in the gospel. We share a confession about Jesus. Now think about this Genesis text, the Jacob wrestling at the riverbank with God. And, and think about this in relationship to Jesus in the story from Gethsemane that we heard read to us so well tonight. You see, Jesus acted on this grand redemptive stage, demonstrating for us, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, that He is Israel coming to the world. And if you know, in the prophets in the Old Testament, Israel and the name Jacob are used synonymously to describe the same entity. So you'll find Jeremiah or Isaiah or Hosea referring to Jacob, and what they mean by Jacob is the nation Israel. So we know that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew comes onto the scene and he says some things that are kind of wild and he enacts some things that really surprise us and what he's doing is he's being Israel for Israel and for the world. You remember Joseph has a, has a dream and then they go down to Egypt, right? Like Israel went down to Egypt and they come out of Egypt like Israel came out of Egypt. And then Jesus, in this chapter 4 of Matthew, is ushered out into the wilderness to be tempted for how many days and nights? 40 days, 40 nights. That's the number of years that Israel's out in the wilderness making a complete hash of the thing, right? And here's Jesus out in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted, and he comes out victorious. He's being Israel. He's being Jacob. And then we follow him in Matthew 5 up into a mountain. And what's he doing on a mountain? On the mountain, he's telling us the law. And what the true implications of the law are, what it means to live in God's kingdom, he's being Jacob for us. I find an enormous amount of encouragement in that. Because I know that for you and for me, and I don't want it to be the case, but I know that for me and for you, Jabok moments, Penuel moments, Wrestling with God moments are coming again. We were um, at the beach with my, our family down in Florida a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago now, two weeks ago. Uh, one of our dearest friends is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's struggling. He's at the end of it. He's wrestling with God, wrestling with faith. And we just spent a week together seeing him hurt and suffer and just looking at our dear friend, and thinking, this is, he's, he's at the river. He's wrestling right now. Never anticipated this. And here he is wrestling with God as he prepares for his death. That moment awaits all of us. Or the, which you could just add, sort of ad infinitum, the number of stories that we could bring to the podium and share. Here's my Jaybok moment. Here's the Jaybok moment I have now. That one didn't seem that big then, but it was big now, but it was certainly big then. And there's more to come. And as these moments come, what I find great encouragement from in Matthew's gospel and in the person and work of Jesus Christ is to know that when I go into Gethsemane and follow Jesus down the Via Dolorosa to the cross, and see him hanging between heaven and hell, what I am seeing is Jacob in Genesis 32 come to its fullest fruition. There is Jacob wrestling with God on behalf of my and your sin. He's wrestling with God. Let this cup pass from me.
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are wrestling terms. And Jesus is doing it, and He's doing it for you and for me. So we don't get any get-out-of-jail-free cards, I'm afraid, in this existence of ours. We don't. But what we are promised together, in all of the differentiations of our shared and unshared stories, is that when those moments come again, and for sure they will, When your wrestling match with God begins and the dust begins to rise and you are thrown into it, you and you, you and God alone wrestling together through the night. When it happens again, you can be assured that you can look to your right hand when the dust begins to rise and you will see our Lord and our Savior who wrestled and prevailed for you as well. That's the hope of the gospel. We wrestle, we strive, it's a life of repentance. And it's a life of repentance that causes us to look away from ourselves to our true Jacob, the one who wrestled and prevailed for you and for me. Let it be, Lord. Set it upon our hearts and our minds that you stepped into this world and you took on human flesh so that you could receive us into your very life. You wrestled for us, Lord. You went to Jabbok for us. And we're so grateful. I pray that you'll help us to live by your grace into the reality of the gospel. 